Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from an introductory course on how to interpret the Bible that I presented in 2012. If you'd like the lecture notes to follow along with this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com. Click on the link on the left side of the page titled Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. And then find the class, Biblical Interpretation. That'll take you to the page with all the audio recordings as well as a, a substantial set of notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study on how to interpret the Bible. Lord, we are grateful uh, for your grace. We thank you for John Paul and the wonderful young man that he is. And just pray your mercy and your grace to continue to be upon him as he grows and studies and learns and knows you. We just pray that you'll be with us tonight as we uh, continue to explore the story of Scripture. Help us to understand not only that the the Bible is a beautiful story, but that we today are continuing to live out that story. So help us in all that we do now to be faithful to you, be honored in our lives. We thank you and praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Luke 16. Luke 16. I'm not going to spend a lot of time tonight uh, on this one, but let's continue it. Again, we're kind of getting down to the, to the moral of the story, but what we talked about last week and the week before was that we have to be careful about assuming that just because we have a chapter break that Luke is transitioning from one topic to another. In fact, Luke's not. In Luke's gospel, remember, you want to look for a a, a scene setting, a a change of of location, a change of characters, and all the above. So 16 just started with, now he was also saying, and you realize, oh, he's continuing whatever he was talking about in chapter 15. And again, we have to really figure out what was happening in 16, but in 15, to know fully what was happening in 16. But we notice also that 16:1, he was saying to his disciples, and that was that difficult parable uh, of the unrighteous steward that we had trouble with the first week. Then verse 14 that we taught last week. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they were also listening, and he said to them, right? and he tells them about you hypocrites who you justify yourselves, uh, uh, etc. Now, verse 19 is this somewhat famous parable that's, that's always uh, difficult and lovely to, to, to look at. But what we want to notice is that verse 19 starts with red letters. In my red letter Bible, it does. And um, the point is, whatever Jesus was saying to the Pharisees in verses 14 through 18, or really 15 through 18, he's still talking to the Pharisees. Right? Oops, that didn't open up. Hold on, sorry there, folks. Um, Open that program. There we go. So 16, verse 19, and it says, uh, Now there was a certain rich man. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. Luke 16, verse 19. A certain poor man named Lazarus was was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table besides... Even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came out that the poor man died. He was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. 
And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. And Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being, he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him, my, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses, Moses and the prophets. Let them, listen, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. All right, talk to me. What do you see? What do you, what's going on? Okay. Uh, so foreshadowing Christ. Right? Because uh, they won't believe in him if someone rises from the dead. All right? And is Jesus predicting his own resurrection and the fact that many of you won't believe yeah, even then? Yes. Very much so. Okay? But you shouldn't have to see that to believe. You already have enough evidence. All right. Yes. Okay. All right. You're not believing Moses and the prophets, so why would you believe me? Very good. Anybody else? So the rich man has at his own gate, as Lazarus is laying at his own gate. Rich man doesn't have a name. All right, that's interesting. Lazarus does, right? Which has led people to wonder, but we'll talk parables in a few weeks, but um, this is the only parable where a character is named. Jesus never names characters in parables. Which is that some to say, oh, it's actually a true story. The rich man is not named because he's in hell. Lazarus is named because it's all good for him. Ah, okay, very good. You get what you give. Yeah. What's the purpose of this parable? I know we haven't talked chapter 15 yet, but in light of what we've already read in chapter 16, what's the purpose of this parable? Why does he tell this story? What's he trying to convey? Okay? All right. You walk by the needy and you don't, you don't care for them. That's unacceptable. Yeah, all right, very much. For us not to act like the rich man. Yes. Okay, or does it? All right, by the way, right? See, the question, the statement is, this kind of gives us information about heaven and hell. Um, and I want to ask the question, well, does it really? All right. Here's one of the things that's interesting, that is, that a lot of times when we get to this particular passage, that's the focus of our discussion. And that is, is Jesus giving us a look into what heaven and hell are really like? Um, is this a real place? Um, can you actually speak across the chasm? Um, you know, we go in that direction, and then, but we, and that's okay. It's, it, those are fun conversations. And there's nothing wrong with the conversations. But the question is, do we do that to, ne- to the neglect of what this parable is actually getting at? That's kind of the kind of the interesting thing. All right, um, now. Let's put the first two things that we did the first two weeks in mind. Uh, what you guys are saying is all correct. Uh, but let's, let's see if we can get this more, more, more narrowed down and, and kind of put it all together, so to speak. All right, yeah, Susan. Well, ultimately, yes. Uh, he shamed them earlier uh, when he called them lovers of money and all that good stuff, right? Yeah. Well, yes, but I'm not sure that I would go so far as to say that they won't repent. 
in, in this story, Lazarus doesn't repent, but it's too late. I'm sorry, the rich man. It's too late for him. He's in hell already. Now, he does say, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if some rises from the dead. But that doesn't mean that a given Pharisee might not eventually believe Moses. That, and, and we're going to see this more starkly next week. Well, I'm going to say next week, but we'll assume it depends on how far we get to chapter 15. All right. 15 is going to really bring this to a climax. All right. So let's see. Here we go. We talked about the first week uh, in the parable of the unrighteous steward of saying that, that the moral of the story was that these people use money, the, the mammon of unrighteousness, as Jesus calls it, in order to get themselves something in the now. Jesus says, use money to get yourself something in the then, right? So that they'll receive you into eternal dwellings. Use it for the sake of God's kingdom, that which is eternal, as opposed to using it for the sake of the kingdom of the world, which is selfish and, and your self-interest at stake, right? Okay. Then, he, that, now that was spoken to disciples. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, however, were listening. So what does that tell us? That tells us that, oh, they're the ones who are using it to get themselves things in the now. They're the ones that are the unrighteous steward who are securing themselves houses now as opposed to houses in eternity. All right. And uh, he condemns them uh, and then tells them this parable. Notice the parable is the message to them. And what's the answer? What's the moral of the story? And that is that if you secure yourself well now, you're damned for eternity. But if you aren't secure now, you might well be rewarded for eternity. It's called the eschatological reversal. How's that? Big fancy word. Eschatological just means the end times. You know, uh, um, the, the eternal reversal. The rich now are the poor then. The poor now are the rich then. Now, Luke absolutely portrays this moral of that story in those stark terms. Uh, and uh, of course, we have to immediately grasp, well, what does that mean? You know, can I not be rich? All right, got to remember the culture. What's he speaking into? He's speaking into a culture that sought honor for themselves in the now. And how do you gain honor for yourself in the now? At the expense of somebody else. Right? At the expense of somebody else. Well, yes, in an honor and shame culture, it's almost always at the expense of somebody else. And if you're honored, somebody's shame. Right? If you're honored, it's... You might have elevated somebody else only to elevate yourself, even then, right? Uh, but ultimately, the, the, the truly honored and the rich are, are, are rich at the expense of the poor. Okay. Now, I'm not going to get into politics or economics and how that translates into the modern day, but I would say that is a pretty good general rule. Uh, and that still even doesn't, even doesn't apply. All right, so what he's speaking into then is that essentially those who are seeking their own honor those who have their own self-interest at stake, hence I give in order that I might receive. The answer is great, fine, so be it. But guess what? Life's going to be reversed in the eternity. The moral of the story is, you guys are the rich men, Lazarus at your gate, guess what? One of these days, you're going to be begging for Lazarus' place. And it ain't going to come. Just like you for... You fail to give grace and, 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 and compassion to, to, to Lazarus, so also Father Abraham is going to fail to give grace and compassion to you. Make sense? Right. That's the moral of the story in a nutshell, but what's interesting about that is how we always go to this passage to talk about what the afterlife is like. All right. I don't know that Jesus is talking at all about what the afterlife is like. 
did he actually concoct a story that would illustrate his point? Right? Now, of course, he totally didn't he didn't totally concoct the story because the story had to make some sense to them, huh? He was probably speaking, this is your conception of what eternity is like. This is your perception of what heaven and hell are like. It's Sha'ol, all right? Uh, and there's a long story behind Hades behind it as well. Uh, Sha'ol is Hebrew, Hades is the Greek. Okay? Um, this is what they thought, and he's just working within that system of what they thought, told this story. Does that mean that Jesus is advocating that what you think is actually the way it really is? Not necessarily at all. All right, fair enough. Questions, comments, thoughts, and remarks? Yeah, Bill? Yes. That's right. The, the theological reversal. That's right. It's fundamental in the New Testament, isn't it? Yes. Exactly the same concept. Okay, let's move on now to page number six. Page number six. All right, what I argued last week, in brief, couldn't go into, into too great a depth, was that we should read the entire Bible in light of Jesus. All right, and the idea of that is uh, that Jesus is the answer to everything. And ultimately, underlying the very fabric of the biblical story is Jesus. Okay? Now, I think that has very significant implications for us today. Right? And let's see if I, can, if I can take us on that journey today. So here's the goal. Uh, uh, page number six, uh, redemptive history. What does redemption mean or redemptive history mean? Right, redemption means to buy back. So redemptive history would be, obviously, history is the story, right? The story of what? story of the Bible, but it's a story about buying his people back, redeeming creation. Because I would say redemptive history is more than just his people, but all of creation, right? So it's a story of God's work of redeeming creation. Okay. So here's how I think we would, and this is, this is like, we're going to put the entire Bible from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 in about 30 minutes. Okay. This is overly simplistic. <laughs> We're going to cut a few things out. All right. So here we go. Genesis 1 through 11. If the Bible is one big story, I'd say Genesis 1 through 11 is the introduction. All right. In fact, you might even call it the, the setting. Right? Okay. This will be relevant for next week, so I'll, I'll, mention, I'll throw it out now. I'm going to talk about this next week when we do Luke, 1, uh, Luke 15. And what happens is, in any story, any story... Disney or likewise, you have ultimately this, 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 this curve, right? And what happens is you start off with the setting, okay? And usually in the setting, what's happening? Oh, everything's fine and dandy. There's this lovely couple, and they're happily married. They've got three lovely kids, right? Uh, everything's, everything's going great, all right? Then something happens, right? There's, there's a moment of crisis where all of a sudden something goes bad. Okay? There's, a, there's a problem that's introduced. Okay? And you know, the guy lost his job. So he's going to go home and everything's going to be fine. Right? So he goes home and his wife, you know, and they start, all right, what, how are we going to fix this? And what are we going to do? But then what happens? Something else happens. It gets worse. Right? And you, know, you keep having this, this con, it's the conflict. Right? And this conflict is this problem that has to be solved. Right? You know, what's going to happen with this? And of course, 
Things, things are fine for, for a little while, but then the wife accused him of being lazy. That's why he can't find another job. And then, then his daughter got pregnant, and now what are they going to do with that? You know, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Now all of a sudden they're going to lose the house, and finally the wife decides she's going to run away with some other guy. Uh, you know, it, it just it can't get worse. It can't get worse. All right, and then finally you get to this point of resolution. And now the problem's been resolved. And what's he going to do? He's going to go back and try to get his wife back and see if she'll take him back. And here comes this moment of great tension. Is she going to take him back? And she does. She takes him back. Conflict's resolved. And they live, you know, they live happily ever after. All right. Something along these lines, right? Or, you know, there's, there's this lovely princess. Let's talk about Disney now. Here we go, right? There's this lovely princess. Or there's this king and queen. And they have this beautiful daughter. And everything's great. And then what happens? A spell gets cast. And she's locked away in a dungeon. Right? And now what are they going to do? Their hopes are, you know, never, and they have until sundown uh, for her to be rescued or she's forever enslaved to the evil witch. Uh, and she's, of course, it's impossible to rescue her because she's being guarded by a dragon. You know, it's just, the scene, it's, the conflict has to be resolved, but the conflict, it's harder and harder and harder to resolve it. Less and less and less likely. Then what happens? Oh, here comes Prince Charming. He can do it. Oh, no, he can't do it. How's he going to slay the dragon? Right? Then what does he do? He slays the dragon. He rescues the princess, you know, and they go off and live happily ever after. All right. Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, obviously, 1 and 2 is that initial setting, uh, you, you could say here. But I'm going to look and say Genesis 1 through 11 is this entire setting. Uh, even though we have a conflict in chapter 3, we're going to say Genesis 1 through 11 is a setting. Um, we have a problem in chapter, two, in chapter 3, right? The problem is, you know, Adam and Eve, you know, Eve hate the apple, you know, can't blame Adam. She cooked the meal. He gave it. To, all right, just kidding. All right. Um, anyways, um, he's just eating what his wife gave him, you know. So, all right. <laughs> That's a bad one there. So, Father, forgive me for I do not know what I'm doing. I'm not even Catholic, but I'm doing that too, just in case. Uh, that's necessary. Um, uh, anyways, so now there's a problem. They get kicked out of the garden. And... That's what was lost. What was lost was that intimacy in the presence of God. What was lost was mankind fulfilling their role as the image bearers of God. And so what's going to be the solution? Well, here will be the solution. You know, maybe she'll have some kids. That'll work. No, nope, that doesn't work. In fact, things get so bad, God has to flood. He floods the world, but he rescues Noah. Oh, that'll work. No, nope, Noah gets off the ark and gets drunk. Right? That doesn't work. Okay, and then they aren't they aren't fulfilling the mandate to go out to all the nations, so what's, you know, the Tower of Babel, right? And, now, and what happens in that, and the reason why I'm thinking 1 through 11, we'll just call 1 through 11 the whole setting, is because this initial thing is setting the stage for the great problem that has to be resolved, and the problem that has to be resolved is worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And again, you could say that we're up here on the, you know, on the, on the bell curve, whatever you want to say, that's fine. All right, so 1 through 11 kind of is, is the initial problem, the initial setting, God, um, and what we notice, of course, is that God is concerned with the nations of the world, but the result is their corporate evil. Okay? Um, and the, the first point I would make is, God has always been concerned with the nations of the world. It has never been just one. Okay? It's always been concerned for the, whole, for, for the entirety of the world. All right, Genesis 12 uh, through Revelation 22 is God's answer to the problem. God's answer to the problem. And what's the answer? Well... He's going to call Abraham. This is 12. And I've said before, I think it's, it's sufficient to say that maybe uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is kind of the thesis statement of the Bible, or the, um, yeah, the thesis statement of the Bible. 
Here we go. And the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, one of the things that's very intriguing, by the way, and again, we could go really deep here or really, um, not too deep. Um, I had a good map, and I closed. One of the interesting things is that several stories, several themes, continue to be repeated over and over and over again. And one of those themes is uh, this idea of, of, of expulsion, okay? Constantly ex- being expelled, constantly having to go somewhere and journey somewhere else. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, okay? Now what we see, of course, is Abraham lives somewhere over in Ur of the Chaldees, which is somewhere along modern-day Kuwait is, what we, is the best that we can, uh, we can determine, uh, somewhere right up in this area here of Kuwait. And, and he's told... Go to the place that I'm going to show you. Okay? Now, the purpose of, of uh, Abraham being called is twofold. Okay? If we go back to Genesis 12 for a second, there's two commands. It's very difficult to see in English. But there's two commands in this particular passage. Right? The first command in Genesis 12 is to go. Abraham must go. All right? Verse 1. Go forth from your relatives. Go. If Abraham doesn't go, nothing else happens. You know, we talk, see, we're really good at debating theological intricacies, you know. It's a God's sovereign choice. God sovereignly chose Abraham, and, you know, and God's going right, to fulfill his will through Abraham, you know, no matter what. If Abraham doesn't go, it doesn't happen. There's always this both and that's happening. All right, the second command uh, in this particular passage is verse, uh, end of verse 2. And it says, and, and be a blessing. Now, the New American Center says, and you shall be a blessing. The Hebrew, it's a command. Be a blessing. Go and be a blessing. And by the way, this summarizes the call for the people of God. You want to know what our mission is? Our mission is, go and be a blessing. Because guess what? If you look at the Great Commission of Matthew 28, it's the same thing. Abraham, you go to the land I'll show you. You you go to all the nations. You be a blessing. You make disciples. It's the same thing. Go and be a blessing is the fundamental call uh, for the people of God. All right, so Abraham has to go. He's going to come to the land that I will show you, which is uh, what we might call Palestine, Israel, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he settles in a number of different places, Hebron eventually, which is where he's buried. Uh, the point then, uh, the point also though is, uh, in verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God never calls people for the sake of those people only. He's always concerned with the nation. The fundamental thrust of the book of Genesis, which is the foundation of the biblical story, is God's concern for the nations. He didn't go, you know what, the whole world's gone to pot, so at least I'll save Abraham and his family. No, the whole world's gone to pot, how am I going to fix this? I know how I'm going to fix this. Abraham, 
I'm going to call you. And in you, I'll bless all the families of the earth. Right? All right? So all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 18, this is just reiterated multiple times, verses 18 and 19, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Okay, so Israel, the, the fundamental point would be this. Israel was called to be a blessing to the nations. Now, when we read the Old Testament story, and we'll talk about how to interpret history uh, in a few weeks, uh, one of the things that we have to be aware of is that all history is by its very nature selective. Right? You can't write a history about everything. It'd be impossible. Right? It's just impossible. So even when the biblical story is telling us the history of the world, it's only the history of like a little bit of it. Right? And when we read the Old Testament from Genesis 12 on, we're not reading about the history of Abraham's family. We're only following one thread because it's Isaac, not Ishmael. Then after it's Isaac, then it's Jacob, not Esau. Then even though it's Jacob, well, he has, and of course, Jacob, his name's changed to Israel. So that's where the name Israel comes from. But ultimately, they're tracing their lineage back to Abraham. But even when it's Israel, he's got 12 sons. But even then, we're really, which one are we most concerned about? Well, it's Joseph initially, that's true. But ultimately, it's Judah. It's Judah. Why? Because the lion from the tribe of Judah. Okay? Now, when you read the Old Testament story, by the way, you wouldn't have gotten Judah. It's only when you realize Jesus comes in that Judah was really the focus all along. Right? But, it's, but Joseph, right? Joseph's that key one. Okay? And, and, we, and we keep following this. All right. So, it's redemptive history, but it, the point then is, how is God going to redeem the nations? And the answer is, well, it's through Abraham. Okay, then it's through Isaac. Okay, then it's through Jacob. Okay, then it's through, oh, then it's through Joseph. Well, it's Joseph, but then there's all these kids. And okay, and it's ultimately it's Judah. We keep following this, and then we get to Moses, and we, you know, we get to David, and we get to Solomon. We keep following this threat. The point of that is that Israel was called to be a light unto the nations. Okay, But what happens? It's a history of God bringing the people into the garden, them disobeying in the garden, and God expelling them, right? God brings Abraham and the Israelites into the promised land, and then what does he do? He expels them. So, long story short, if you're not familiar, you know, we did a whole course on Old Testament history, which we'll do again in the fall next year. We'll give a lot more detail. But um, let's, let's skip over, of course, the one week that I want to have all those handouts, um, I left them in the closet. So, like I bring them out every week, and I'm like, I never use these, so I'm going to leave them in here this week. Um, and then I don't. You know the story, they go to Egypt, right? They're enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Um, they eventually come into... Uh, the land, the, the, the promised land, so to, uh, so to speak. All right. And all right, we cut way ahead in the story, and they, they, they enter the promised land. They, they, they uh, establish themselves. Eventually, David establishes a dynasty. David becomes the king. He rules over this united Israel. Um, uh, David has a son named Solomon. Solomon becomes the king of the united Israel. All right. When Solomon dies, his sons divide the empire in half. They won't agree with each other. They, they, they go off. Jeroboam becomes the king of Israel. Rehoboam becomes the king of Judah. Israel and Judah become two separate nations. Now, the significant aspect of that is 
that Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. Jerusalem is in Judah. So what does that mean? That means that if the people of Israel want to worship God, they have to go to a rival nation to do so, which means it ain't going to happen, is it? And you're ultimately going to get even different religions as a result of that, of the, of the political rivalry. All right, long story short, the nation of Israel and Judah go to war with each other, and in the result of the war, um, one of the, the southern kingdom of Judah calls on the mighty Assyrian Empire. Hey, Assyria, uh, we're afraid, we're, we're worried, we're, uh, we're in danger here, we're going to need help, so would you please come and rescue us? And the result is, this is a lot of arrows here, whoops, ignore the, ignore the multiplicity of arrows, and let's see if we can go. Uh, the, the, the end result is Assyria comes in and conquers the northern tribes of Israel, sends them away, right? They're in the land, God expels them. They disobey in the land. God expels them out of the land. The northern tribes of Israel are, are taken captive, and they're sent off into Babylonia. A uh, hundred and some odd years later, that's in the 7, 720, 721 B.C. All right. Then along comes, um, that's the Assyrian Empire. Then comes along uh, 150 years or so later, you get the Babylonian Empire coming along. And what does the Babylonian Empire do? The Babylonian Empire captures the southern kingdom of Judah, and it does what? It expels them. Okay. So the people of the southern kingdom of Judah are then sent off into exile, and the result now is the people, the, the people don't live in the land at all. So here's the deal. Israel was supposed to be a light under the nations. Israel was supposed to be the means through which the nations know who God is. They're going to bless all the nations. Okay. So now what we're going to do is we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. All right. And I'm going to, uh, capital C... On your outline, tell me if I'm going too quickly, if something doesn't make sense. I'm trying to give the skinny of the story, and I hope I'm doing it justice. But Jesus in the fulfillment of the mission, the servant in Isaiah. Uh, And what you might want to do is label this Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. Isaiah 40 through 66. Okay, Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 pick up on at the historical moment where the people have essentially been kicked out of the land, technically all the northern tribes at this point in time, and now they're in a distant land. And here's their thought. Uh, How can we ever receive the blessings of being God's people when we don't even live in the land and when we've been kicked out? And the answer is, God will raise up his servant. Okay, tell me if this makes sense. How are, how, we've been kicked out of the land. The promises that God made of us being blessed in the land, which they don't realize means that there to be a blessing to the nations, they think it's just for themselves. But how are we going to receive these blessings? How are we going to be rescued? And the answer is, God will raise up his servant. Okay, does that make sense so far? All right, now, you're all thinking, oh, I know who that is. That's obviously it's Jesus, because I'm a Christian, and I know Jesus is the servant. Okay? But what I want us to do is look at Isaiah, and let me skip here and start with Isaiah chapter 40, 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1, and it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, 
my chosen one, in whom I soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Uh, here is a solution. God's going to raise up his servant, and the servant is the means by which God will redeem the nations. Right? This big biblical story. Abraham was supposed to do it. The Israelites weren't faithful. He had to expel them from the land. He brings them back from Egypt. They still aren't faithful. He expels them from the land again. All right? How is God going to do it? He's going to raise up his servant. All of us as Christians go, no problem. That's Jesus. We get the story. But that's not the whole story. Isaiah 44. Okay? And we're going to talk about this in a few weeks when we talk about how to interpret prophecy All right? and poetry. Isaiah 44, verse 1. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. What we'll talk about in a few weeks is poetry, and most of the prophets are poetical. Right? I don't know if your Bible does this, but my Bible puts poetry where it's center justified. Right? You know what I mean by that? Right? As opposed to you know narrative where you know it's 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 uh, it's block justified. Right? All right. So you can see Isaiah is center justified. It's poetry. Looks like the Book of Psalms, doesn't it? All right. So what happens in poetry is. They will very consistently, if not always, have two lines. Where the first and the second line, the second line basically repeats the first line. So the two lines here are, listen, O Jacob, my servant. The second line is, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Now, you know what? Jacob is Israel, isn't it, right? Because Jacob is the guy whose name was changed to Israel. But Isaiah is not referring to the person Jacob. He's referring to the nation of Israel. Okay? He's referring to the whole nation as a, as a people. He calls them Jacob and he calls them Israel because those terms are synonyms. Okay? Now also notice that this is called parallelism. Two lines parallel one another. The first part of the parallelism is Jacob and Israel. The second part of the parallel is my servant and the one whom I have chosen. Right, which is what we read uh, in chapter 42, my servant whom I have chosen, or my servant, my chosen one. The servant and the chosen one are the same thing. What do we realize? Israel is the servant. You see, as Christians, we ran too quickly to immediately assume, oh, Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Well, true. Fully agree with you, but it's a little bit more complicated than this. The servant is Israel. Right? It's emphatic. It's clear. Right? In fact, if we were to look at the Hebrew throughout all these chapters, 42 through 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, almost always, almost is one exception, 42 verse 1, um, almost always the servant is referred to as a plural. Okay? So when you see the word you, which in English you can't tell, when you see the word you running through this passage, all right, it's almost always in the plural. So verse uh, three, uh, I will pour out one. Of the, um, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. The word "your" is plural there. It's not an individual person. It's the nation of Israel. My blessing will be on your descendants. All right. I know what the whole point is. This is what Israel was called to do: was to be a light unto the nations. Okay, to be the means by which God blessed the nations. All right. Now, one other thought on this particular passage, all right, and that is, um, this whole section of the book of Isaiah is framed in the context 
of a courtroom scene. Okay? God is the judge. Okay? And the way this courtroom scene works, let's see here. Uh, if I can find a good passage here off the top of my head. To, um, uh, I think, yeah, 40, 41. You want to skip back to 41? I'm not going to bring it up on the computer if that's okay. I'll just kind of skim through here for a few verses. Uh, I want to get you the sense that this is a courtroom scene. All right. Uh, 41. Uh, let's see, verse 21. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of, Je of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what's going to take place. The former events declare what they were. All right, the point is, you can see this language of a courtroom scene, right? Present your case. All right, here's who's on trial. First off, the gods are on trial. The nations are being called to trial, and the nations are being called, hey, Bring your God forth, or if your God can't come because you have to carry him because he's a block of wood, then you come and speak for your gods and present your case. Okay? And there's this great passage in chapter 44, right, um, where Isaiah just mocks idolatry. Right? And what is he doing? He's mocking the gods because the whole passage is, your God's a block of wood. Half of it, you, you know, you chop down a log, and what do you do? Half of it, you make a fire. The other half, you make a god. And, and he's just mocking the nations and the gods of the nations. And the point of it is, their eyes are plastered over so their gods can't see. Their mouths are plastered over so they can't speak. And the point then becomes, if you're in a courtroom and you can't speak, you lose. So the nations are on trial but they can't speak for, them, for their gods, and their gods can't speak for themselves. But here's the problem. Israel's, or Yahweh, the God of Israel, his witnesses are the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are, well, you know, if we go through this whole passage, they're deaf and they're dumb themselves. Who is so blind but my servant? My servant, Israel, you were supposed to stand up for me in this courtroom and defend me before the nations, but you're blind and you can't see yourself. Right, so Isaiah 43, this is on your notes, I, I believe, right? Uh, point number two. Isaiah 43, verse 10. And it says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. See this courtroom scene. You're my witnesses, declares the Lord. My servant, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Right? But there's a problem. And the problem, of course, is um, that you guys have become blind and deaf and dumb yourselves. The servant hasn't done the job. Okay, so the question becomes, well, well how is this going to happen? If God's raised up Israel to be the means by which he's going to bless the nations, what's going to happen? So we skip now to chapter 49. Isaiah 49. Okay, and let's, let me start in verse 3. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Right, now, if we've been reading in Hebrew all along, something really stark has just jumped out at us. And you can kind of see it in English. In English, you'll notice that the word me is singular. The entire time, 
Israel, the servant, is a plural. It's the nation. But then all of a sudden, some individual person comes up and says, He said to me, and in Hebrew, the word you is singular. You are my servant. Israel. Huh? A particular individual is himself Israel? And of course, we know where Isaiah is going because we have the New Testament. Jesus is Israel. Remember I said that last week? I said I'd talk about this more as we go. He is Israel. Everything Israel was called to do and to be, Israel failed at it. But Jesus was the true Israel. Right? Isaiah 43 now. Uh, 49 verse 3. You are my servant Israel whom I will show my glory. But I said I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet, sh- in vanity, yet surely the justice due to me is worth the, with, with the Lord. My reward is with my God. And now... Says the Lord, who formed me, singular, from the womb to be his servant. And look what Israel's, look what the servant's job's going to be. To bring Jacob back to him, in order that Israel might be gathered to him. All right? Very briefly, I said, remember the story that the people of Israel have been kicked out of the land because of their disobedience, right? The Assyrians kicked them out, the Babylonians kicked out Judah. Uh, 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 the southern tribes of Judah. And what's going to happen? He formed me to bring Jacob back that Israel might be gathered to him. Remember, this is just kind of two lines repeating themselves. I am the one that's going to bring Israel back from, from the, what's called the exile. I'm going to bring them back to the land. Okay? Now look at verse 6. He says, is it, this is actually a question. Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? Question mark. Is that, is, is that too small for you? Answer, yes. You know what? I mean, I've called you to bring Israel back. I've called you to bring Jacob back. But, you know, that's like, that's like too easy. You could do better than that. So here's the answer. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Ah, whoever this servant is, which we get a good glimpse, it's an individual person. His task is going to be to bring Israel back, right, from captivity in Babylon, captivity in Assyria, bring him back to the land. But that's too small. That's like easy. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to be a light to the nations also. Which is what? The fundamental task of Israel. Why was Abraham called to be the blessing to the nations? You have to look in the Hebrew. It's the only way you can do it. The question is, how can you look from uh, when he's going from plural to singular? The, the problem is, in English, the word you can be singular or plural. You can't tell. You, you, you do. And so you, you, the point is, you, you miss the whole point of it. You, you do. Um, and now, here's the thing. All right. So if we're talking to... A Jewish person, for example, modern-day Jew, okay, um, and we were to say, most of you are familiar with where we're going, right? Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, right? He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, the sheep before his shears is silent. Yeah. Isaiah 53 is probably one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, right? And I'm not sure if we'll get there uh, or not. It's on the outline, we'll try to see if we can get there. All right, here we go. Um, 
And we say, that was Jesus. That's the cross. It's the crucifixion. But the person Isaiah 53 is about is the servant. So we go as good Christians and say, listen, I, you know, you're a Jewish person. I want to talk to you about Jesus, and I want to see what you think about this. And let me show you Isaiah 53. Look, it's about Jesus. How would they answer that? They say, oh, no, it's about Israel. We say, well, I know it's about Israel, but Jesus was Israel. Oh, no, 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 Jesus wasn't Israel. Israel's a nation. Yeah, but look, in Hebrew, Isaiah 49 turns to the singular. Right? Goes from plural to singular. And here's what they're going to say about that. They're going to say, this is a singular reference. This simply references an individual who represents the nation. Now, they're dead on. They're dead on. It's Jesus who represents the nation. But the point of what, what they're thinking is, he's speaking to one person, but he's really referencing everybody. It's kind of like saying, well, you know, if you, have, if you have a monarchy, you know, uh, the king, whatever the king or the queen says, is represent, you know, well, the king says this in, in some foreign diplomatic event. All right. Well, that's the nation of England. Whatever the, the queen said, that's England. speaking. She's speaking for the whole nation. So that's what a Jew's going to say, and that is that God's speaking to an individual, but he's really speaking to that individual who represents the entire nation. And in ultimate reality, the whole nation is, being, is the prophecy. And we're saying, no, he's speaking to an individual because one individual will be himself the nation. See, see the difference there? All right, but to answer your question, Peter... There's no way to do it. I mean, you are stuck. We are at the, we, we are at the hands of, uh, of uh, the limitations of English, and that's where maybe if you have some ability to look into a Greek or a Hebrew and see what's, see what's there, and in all reality, you go to a good commentary, you go to some good sources, which we'll talk about week number eight, and say, hey, here's some good sources. That'll help guide you through that. Does that help? Kind of, yeah, a little. Uh, of course, my answer is this. It's, yes, it's pretty big. I, I would agree, uh, but but I think the answer is, I, I think the answer is when you look at Christ, it makes sense. In fact, the only way to ultimately make sense of the totality of the story is to read it through the lens of Jesus. Okay, right? Um, see, even Isaiah fifty-three. Um, if, let's let's skip there for a second now, so we can all be referencing the same thing. Um, even Isaiah fifty-three, it says. And the passage actually starts in chapter 52, verse 13. So that's why uh, letter um, five, number five in your outline, 52, 13. It says, my servant. So here's another, we call these servant songs. They're songs written to or about the servant. And it says, my servant will prosper. He'll be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. All right, and then we skip down to verse chapter 53. Um, verse uh, three, he was despised and forsaken uh, of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs, he himself, there's, that's clearly singular, he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and as a sheep 
that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By, his, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. All right, his grave was assigned with the wicked. Down here, verse 9. Um, and yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. All right. And here's the one key thing I would point out about this whole passage. It never says he was crushed for his own iniquities. In fact, it says, let's see, for the, verse 8, for the transgression of my people. Verse 9, he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. That can never be true of any nation. We love Israel. We love the people. We love all people. We're not. We're not. We're just simply saying no nation. That 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 statement can't be true of any nation. But it was true of Christ. Christ must be the fulfillment of this. So if they're saying, well, it's just like a king representing the people, the answer is, to what people would God ever say they had done no violence? The answer, the answer then becomes, it's Christ. Okay? So, going back to the notes here, number four, I said, you know, by chapter 49, um, it changes to the singular servant. Isaiah moves back and forth from the corporate to the individual. Uh, and the idea becomes that Jesus is that individual that is himself also the corporate. He's the true Israel. And as the true Israel, he's faithful. He does what God actually intended Abraham and his offspring to do. He's the seed of Abraham. You know, we can just go through the whole New Testament now uh, on this particular point. All right, let's go forward here a little bit. Am I, am I clear? I mean, yes, we're okay. All right, let, capital D here. Let's just finish up a few more points here and then we'll stop. He just clearly believed himself to be fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53, Luke 22:37. Um, he quotes Isaiah 53, Luke 22:37. It says, he, uh, what, God bless you. What was written, bless you again. What was written about me, or, I'm sorry, what was written must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. That's a quote from Isaiah 53. So, Jesus saw himself as fulfilling this promise. All right. uh, secondly, he saw his blood uh, as a covenantal act for the benefit of others. Matthew 26, that's the Last Supper. Right? This is my blood of the covenant. So, it's this, this act for the sake of the nations. Uh, letter F. He proclaimed that his ministry was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4. Remember he goes in the synagogue in Nazareth? Right? And he quotes, let me read, let me show you Isaiah, actually we'll show you Luke 4. Luke 4, 18. And he quotes Isaiah 61 here. And he says, because the Lord is upon me, Isaiah, Luke 4, 18, which is Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. The, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to free those who are downtrodden and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. 
right? That's a quote from Isaiah. So it's what Isaiah was talking about was God's going to bring you back, but he's going to use the servant to do so. We figured out now that the servant was actually Jesus. And when he brings him back, what's it going to look like? That's what it's going to look like. He's going to proclaim, preach the gospel of the poor, release of the captives, recover the sight of the blind. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Right? You know, I asked this question in the Wednesday night study that we're doing on understanding Jesus from his birth to his death to his second coming. I said, why is there so much stuff in the middle in the Gospels? We're all really good at Christmas time about Matthew 1 and 2 and about Luke 1 and 2. Right? And we're all really good at Easter about Matthew 26 to 28, right? about the, you know, the last two chapters of Mark, last couple chapters of Luke, last couple chapters of John. All right. We're really good at the, at the end at Easter. We're really good at the beginning at, in, in, um, at Christmas. But why is there so much stuff in the middle? Why does Matthew have 23 chapters of the middle? It's not the birth. It's not the death. There's 23 chapters in the middle. And the answer is because the middle is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. The middle is the captives are being released. The poor are being, are being liberated. The blind are, being, are seeing. The dead are coming to life again. This is what the restoration and the redemption of God's kingdom looks like. Now, by the way, it's a taste, it's the beginning of the New Jerusalem, isn't it? Where ultimately there will be no more death. See, because even the dead that come to life during the life of Jesus, they died again. But that was still a prelude to what would ultimately happen. The, the rising of Lazarus was a prelude to the ultimate rising of Lazarus. Right? So, this is the ministry of Jesus. Make sense? Alright, now, does Jesus see himself as the fulfillment of the story of Israel. I could go on for days here, literally. I'm not exaggerating, by the way. And you're like, yeah, you could. Okay, shut up. All right, here we go. But let me just give you kind of a couple quick glimpses. All right? One, he chose 12 disciples. That had to be intentional. In the sense that this now is the fulfillment of the 12 tribes of Israel. It, it just wasn't coincidental. All right? This is the fulfillment of the 12 tribes of Israel. He called them a little flock, Luke 12, verse 32, which is a term for the remnant of Israel. Okay? It's a term used for Israel. Okay? Um, he, by the way, there's so many terms, you know, even First Peter, you are a chosen race, that's, that's Israel, right? You're my servant whom I have chosen, that's Israel. Yet Peter says, you're a chosen race, that's us. Right? You're a holy priesthood, Exodus 19, you're a holy priesthood, First Peter 2, we're a holy priesthood. And you, you can just go on and on and on and see the overlap of the language. Let's, let me just put it this way. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia. Right? The Greek word for church is used in the Old Testament for the gathering together of the people of Israel. That's what the word means. Ek means out of or from. Kaleo is to call. To be called out of or to be called from. To gather together from or out of the nations. The term used for the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. It's used in the New Testament for the church. In fact, we translate it as church. What, do we, what does that mean? The people of God in the New Testament are the fulfillment of all God's covenant promises throughout the Old Testament because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Now, I think that has great implications for us. But here we go. Point number two. He envisions them judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 19. Um, he enters Jerusalem fulfilling Zechariah 9 and the promised royal restoration of Israel. Remember, he'll come riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9. All right, and then letter H, 
all of God's promises are yes or amen in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. All right, now, um, what does that mean for us? Let me go one or two more minutes. Yeah, we're good. All right, and then we're going to eat some cake. All right, here we go. Uh, let's see. I'm going to skip down. I'm going to skip page 7. And I'm going to skip down to page 8, where we talk about us. The role of the New Testament people of God. Jesus calls, the New Testament consistently says, you are my witness. Right? That's Isaiah 43, the role for Israel. But Acts chapter 1 begins with, you are my witnesses to the nations. Right? You shall do this job. All right? Secondly, all right? Acts 13, 46, and 47. Before we go there, I want you to look at Luke 2, verse 32. Luke 2, verse 32. We, this is Simeon in uh, the temple. He's that old guy that was told, I won't die until I see the Lord. And they bring the baby Jesus into him. And he says, okay, look, I can die. Which is exactly what he says. All right? Um, and verse 30, I can die because my eyes have seen your salvation. Which, verse 31, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. I'm sorry. Now look at verse 32. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. A light of revelation to the Gentiles is a quote of Isaiah 49, verse 6. Is it too small a thing that you should bring Israel back? Yes. In fact, I'll make you a light of revelation to the nations. The word nations and Gentiles is the same word. Okay? That's too small for you. I'll make you a light of revelation to the nations. Now, that's Jesus, right? Jesus is the light of the world. Anybody have a problem with that? No. John 9, 5, I am the light of the world. We have no problem with that. But look what Paul says in Acts 13, 46 and 47. Paul goes in the synagogue and preaches to the Jews. After he preaches to the Jews, they kick him out. All right, so, uh, or they're about to kick him out. Paul says, well, here's the deal. See, verse 45, the Jews saw the crowds. They saw all the Gentiles coming in. They were all upset. So Paul says this, verse 46. It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, the Jews. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we, Barnabas and me, are turned to the Gentiles. Verse 47. Because the Lord, or for thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. If you look carefully, Paul said, he quotes Isaiah 49, verse 6. That is Isaiah 49, verse 6. I will make you a light, of, of, uh, a, a light for the Gentiles. But Isaiah 49, 6 is about Jesus. We all know it's about Jesus. Simeon says it's about Jesus. Luke quotes it as about Jesus. By the way, Luke wrote the book of Acts also. So how could Luke tell us in the, book of, in the Gospel of Luke that this verse is fulfilled by Jesus? And then later on in the book of Acts say, oh, that verse is fulfilled by Paul and Barnabas. Answer, because it's both. Remember, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, but didn't he also say, you're the light of the world? Jesus is the light to the nations, but did Jesus go to the nations? Well, not really. I mean, a couple times he spoke to a Syrophoenician woman and did a few things like that, right? But what did he do? When the Gentiles come to him, he says, okay, my time is to, is to go. You go to the nations. The 
point then is this. God called Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. The story is about how God's going to redeem the nations. And he chose Abraham to be the source by which he would redeem the nations, right? But what happened? Israel failed, but Jesus didn't. Jesus did it. He was the faithful. By the way, we would have failed too. We're no different than Israel, no different than Isaac, no different than Solomon, no different than any of those people. We would have failed also. But Jesus did it. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's us too, right? But now that it's been fulfilled, what happens? Oh, you guys, go finish the task. Because the nations haven't heard yet. The point of the story is God's going to redeem the nations. Jesus is the redemption. Jesus is the solution. But now the story continues. And the significance of that is that's the story of the New Testament. The fulfillment of God's purposes, of redeeming the creation. But the story continues because when the history stops in the Bible, history doesn't stop. The story keeps, keeps going on. Does that make sense? And you see why I think this is so important? Because I think if we miss this, we, we miss what our mission is, what our task is also. Let alone we fail to miss the, the whole story of what the Bible is all about. All right, any questions, comments, then remarks? All right, let me close with a word of grace. We got cake here. We'll finish a few minutes early. And it's uh, John Paul's birthday. And how old are you? 16? Are you driving your mom home now? So, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us grace. Give us discernment. Give us understanding. Give us um, strength. So many of us, we just don't feel that we're doing a very good job of being a light to the nations. We have enough trouble being the light to ourselves, let alone in our homes. We struggle with that. Yet you've asked us to rely upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You called a shepherd who was exiled from his own people to be the leader of Israel and lead them out of Egypt. You called a shepherd boy to be the king of Israel whom his own father didn't even think about when it came time for an anointing. You call the least of these to become the greatest of these. So, Father, we fit very well the category of the least of these. And help us not to dwell in that least syndrome, but help us to become the greatest of these as you empower us to do so. We thank you and praise you for your grace and for your mercy. We ask your blessings upon our lives. We thank you now for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.